welcome to those joining. We're gonna give everyone a minute or so to join us, but we're happy that you're here. Looking forward to engaging in this conversation. Welcome, welcome. For those that are joining, we're giving everyone about a minute or so to join us before we get started. to see so many of you joining. Okay, before we begin our event, the New York chapter of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security wishes to acknowledge and honor the Lenape people whose forced removal from their lands enabled the colonization and commercialization of the greater New York City area we know today. As a group of women of color, we recognize that the struggle for indigenous rights is deeply connected to all human rights work and is of critical importance to creating a more just and equitable society. New York City may have been built on the backs of indigenous people, but our chapter will not be constructed without them. As a chapter, we want to take this opportunity to commit ourselves to dismantling the systems of oppression against indigenous people who continue to be denied their rights to their land and to self-determination to this day. Their struggles are not past tense and neither is their joy, which we will support in our mission to transform our collective understanding of peace and security. Welcome everyone. My name is Dr. Vanessa Leon and I'm assistant clinical professor of urban planning and public service as well as director of the graduate urban planning program at New York University's Robert Earth Wagner's Graduate School of Public Service. I'm so excited to introduce you all to the panelists we're gonna have engage us today and to facilitate this conversation. You know, as I thought about today and just thinking about historically where we have and continue to sort of go as a society, women of color have and just continue to endure so much, right? Sometimes too much. But like our foremothers before us, we continue to not only prevail and conquer new heights as we work to collectively leave the world around us no less but rather greater than we found it, but we also bring those along, whether they look like us or not, right? Through sacrifice, determination, courage, and love, we continue to commit ourselves in daring to believe that the world we desire to live in is not only possible, but that we have an active role in making it so from national to local, even international scales, you know, all of these articles and studies coming out that women, for example, countries that are led by women, excuse me, are doing far better in managing the pandemic, for example, than those by men. Um, and not that we're sort of putting anyone down, but it just shows that we continue to be at the forefront of such unprecedented societal and institutional change as more and more of us rise to the forefront. I like many remain encouraged by the historic rise of our first Indian and Jamaican women of color to the vice presidency of the United States while committing to the truth that one win cannot and should not make us complacent 
until these exciting victories are less of an anomaly and more so the norm, right? This can only be harnessed through our collective power. And in this regard, this is what we wanna do with our time together this evening. We wanna explore the ways in which the momentum of, of women of color is playing out in various ways across New York City to create and establish transformative, positive and lasting change. Our panelists each bring a distinctive set of perspectives and experiences that together form a cohesive whole as they work to improve the conditions of our time socially, economically, environmentally, and more. With that said, I'd like to introduce our first panelist, Erica Lim. Erica is the co-founder of Sister Diaspora for Liberation, and she'll tell us a little more about herself as well as the important work that she and her organization are engaged in. Erica, feel free to take on over. Thank you so much and thank you all for being here and for having me uh, tonight. Uh, just a little bit more about Sister Diaspora for Liberation. So we are a grassroots collective representing Black, Indigenous, and Asian women of color, queer women, immigrant women, working and middle-class women, all organizing together. And our purpose is to build sisterhood amongst women of color through a social justice lens as we work together for liberation for all our communities. Uh, we really see the struggles of women of color and of all of us as intertwined and we believe that when women of color unite we can really create transformational change and you know most recently we see the success of this transformational change as we flipped a lot of states blue in the recent presidential election and you know you see all these headlines saying oh Biden flipped uh, x amount of states and in my mind I'm thinking actually Biden didn't flip them the organizers on the ground flipped them and if you look at the orgs that were leading the movement building on the ground um, um, for the past several years and for the recent um, big storm of organizing for the election, they were all led by women of color. Uh, so you see the power of, of leadership of women of color um, right there as, as, a, as an example. Um, but back to SDL a little bit. Uh, so it, SDL was started by four of us, uh, women of color from different backgrounds in a very intentional way. Uh, we were in different organizing spaces and what we were seeing in a lot of spaces were in fact replicated systems of oppression within organizations and groups. So for example, the idea of like capitalism and labor and utilitarianism and valuing people for what they can produce or contribute over their humanity. So we really wanted to create an organizing space that could also create community for women of color. So something that moved beyond solidarity and volunteerism into more sisterhood and liberatory healing. And uh, the key principle that became uh, the foundation for our organization was the idea of a love ethic. Um, so a love ethic is a term coined by uh, Bell Hooks, famous feminist uh, writer, woman of color herself. Um, and SDL organizes through a love ethic, um, basing that our collective liberation and freedom is rooted in a love for ourselves, for each other. And we put that at the forefront of our political practice. So what is a love ethic and what does that look like in political organizing? Um, well, Bell Hooks uh, essentially talks about love not as a noun or a state of being, um, as we commonly hear, but as an action. So uh, this means looking really closely at the choices we make and how they impact others. And as a political practice, what a love ethic is, is essentially the enactment of justice. It's the practice of freedom in the public space. So um, it's really about challenging and dismantling all oppressive systems because their existence depends on each other to continue. Um, 
And I'm just going to read a little snippet from Bell Hooks um, just to give a better idea. Uh, she says, uh, without love, our efforts to liberate ourselves and our world community from oppression and exploitation are doomed. As long as we refuse to address fully the place of love and struggles for liberation, we will not be able to create a culture of conversion where there is a mass turning away from an ethic of domination. Without an ethic of love shaping the direction of our political vision and our radical aspirations, we are often seduced in one way or another into continued allegiance to systems of domination, meaning imperialism, sexism, racism, or classism. Um, so what she's saying is that um, a lot of us are motivated to pursue change that it suits us ourselves. So it's like a self-centered longing for change. Um, so until we're able to accept that all these systems are interlocking and interdependent, um, we're just gonna contribute to maintaining them in one way or another. Um, and it's gonna undermine our individual quest for freedom um, and collective liberation struggle. So um, it's really about giving up our individual and group privilege um, and understanding, uh, you know, at a basis, what solidarity really looks like. Um, so that is the lens in which um, SDL, as a practice, creates our political platform, and that's how we also build relationships with each other in SDL. Um, it's a lot of hard work because you're essentially just unlearning hundreds of years of all these isms that we've all been raised in in society, like sexism, classism, gender norms, ableism, racism. Um, and we aren't perfect. We all make mistakes and we're learning as we go, try to meet people where they are in our organizing. Um, and a lot of this also has to do with healing as well, because we all you know, have this in our subconscious with how we're raised with the society we live in. Um, but we really try to um, organize through this love ethic and build sisterhood with each other, um, you know, the members of the collective and also in how we organize the community. Um, we really want um, folks to be able to step into their own power and leadership and to feel supported and heard and to have a loving space to engage around social justice issues. Um, because a lot of what organizing is, is essentially building relationships. So how do we build these relationships in, in a way that reflects a, a love ethic so people can come into the work with their full selves? Um, now, you know, this is, might not be like the fastest way to build a mass movement. Obviously, it's not the most effective strategy because of the time and depth and work that it takes to really build sisterhood in an authentic way. Um, but we at SDL don't necessarily see um, ourselves or our role as, as building a mass movement. But what we really wanted to do was try to create a strong community for women of color um, and to ensure that there is a platform and voice that, ref, uh, that is reflective of women of color in local spheres. So for example, locally here in New York, uh, city. And uh, we really want to identify and elevate the needs and priorities of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color as women of color. Um, and, you know, we really see that it's imperative that we have women of color in leadership in changing systems because often uh, we are the most targeted when it comes to the isms, right? Um, and uh, you take, for example, issues such as incarceration or, you know, SDL was most recently working on uh, the defund the police campaign with the city council budget change over 2020. Um, and you see, for example, that when you look at the data, uh, incarceration rates are actually decreasing for men. But what most people don't talk about is that they've actually increased 300% for women. 
and uh, women of color are especially targeted by this. And what a lot of folks also don't talk about or bring up is that over 80% of women who are incarcerated are survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault or some other form of abuse. Um, so this is just an example of why we really need women of color to be listened to and heard um, to affect policy and change. Um, uh, SDL was working in 2019 and before with the Women of Coalition Prisoners, and we were able to pass in New York City the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. Um, it was signed by Cuomo in 2019. And what this act does is give discretion to uh, judges uh, to make decisions about how to, to do alternative sentencing for women who are coming up in court who are survivors so that they don't have to be uh, incarcerated instead. Uh, so that's just one example um, of, of, of how women of color really need to be in leadership positions or have their voices heard to affect policy because our stories aren't often talked about or discussed in the public sphere or taken into consideration. Um, and SDL also works a lot to do um, electoral political organizing locally in New York City. And we're really trying to get a lot of progressive women of color into local office. Um, we see a huge increase in women, progressive women of color running. And so we just really want to encourage uh, folks to support progressive women of color, support their campaigns, uh, do door knocking, uh, endorse them, because we really see that when we have women of color leadership, true progressive women of color leadership, the narrative is changing in the public sphere. So uh, we really, really encourage um, folks to look out for candidates at the local level and to support those campaigns. Um, and I think my time is running out for now. So I'm gonna stop right here and leave the rest for the Q&A section. Thank you. Erica, thank you, thank you. Quite an opening there. I mean, so many things for us to continue unpacking, right? I love this sort of love ethic that you lay out and love as an action word, as a practice, and the idea the, you know, that women need to be listened to and heard in order to affect that you know, policy and change. What remarkable work. You know, a lot of this stems from our lived experiences, right? And our sisters and those we see around us, the communities we come from. And so I'm particularly excited to introduce our next panelist. You know, next we'll hear from Tanisha Grant, the Chief Executive Officer of Parents Supporting Parents, as well as the lead administrator of the Facebook group, Moms United for Black Lives New York City. Talk about love, none like a mother's love, I'm told. <laughs> Tanisha, welcome. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Um, and thank you everyone who decided to join us today. It's wonderful to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I'm a black woman. So when I speak and what I do, it comes from being a black woman, a black mother, a black grandmother, and the descendant of enslaved Africans in this country. With that being said, um, in 2020, I, it was just enough. I couldn't take it anymore. Um, the reason why I founded Parents Supporting Parents New York is because Black parents didn't have anywhere to go. We don't have a space exclusively for us. Um, there's a problem in this country with Black unity because for so long we've been told that Black unity is a problem. Everyone else can unify but Black people. As a Black woman, I say no more. So I created a space for black parents so that we could talk, 
so that we could support each other, so that we could advocate for good education for our children and for better housing and for all the things that we don't have in our communities for, for health resources because you know Cuomo says that's our communities are health deserts so I created a space for black parents coinciding with that I also became the lead admin for uh, Wall of Moms and I changed that to Moms United for Black Lives and there's something to be said about action and to be said about action done from the ground from the people that the have nots, that people don't think that we can do. So education is very important to us. Our black and brown students have never had full funding for quality education in this country. Um, in this city, we have the most segregated school system in the country. So New York is not as diverse as they would say as they would have you think. The problem was laptops. The problem was our black and brown children were being told because their parents couldn't afford the laptops that they only deserved broken items, iPads issued from the DOE with no keypads to do their work on. This created a bigger divide in equities in education. And as a black woman, I know that this country has tried to hand our children hand-me-downs for too long. So me, along with my organizations, decided that we were going to do something about it on the ground, that we were going to show the powers that be, the education system, the governor, the mayor, what it looks like to provide our children with what they truly deserve. So in September, we started a fundraiser. And as to date, we have had four laptop giveaways. We have serviced eight, over 80 children and we have brought them eight gigabyte HP touchscreen laptops straight out the box from PC Richards. We have connected, uh, we have connected a community with PC Richards and on 125th Street in Harlem, in our community. And we have raised over $55,000 to buy our babies the technology that they deserve. Now we have done this in a pandemic. So people are not as broke as we think they are. It's just certain people that don't have the money to do things like this for their children. We don't ask our children, families, to fill out a whole bunch of paperwork to uh, pass this test or pass that test because society has a way of telling the people that have the, the least that they have to show so much to say that they want something, that they need something, uh, to need something. Basically, basically begging the system for things that should be given to our children, things that should be given to um, relieve some of the stress off of our parents who are working their tails off to, get, to keep the lights on and to keep food on their table. So what we are doing is so important 
to black and brown communities. And it shows what regular people can do when they get together and they say enough is enough. I hear a lot of people talking. I cannot tell you how many meetings I have set in, how many education meetings I have set in, how many trials I have sat in for criminal justice. I cannot tell you, it's so much that I cannot tell you all of the inequities that are formed against women of color, people of color, black indigenous people of color. But what I can tell you is where it stems from where it started. It started with the, with, the, with the genocide of indigenous people in this country and this enslaved labor of black people in this country. And I think that we don't concentrate on that enough to overcome the problem. I don't think that we give the, the people in this country, the black people in this country, their due, their respect, their reparations. And with this laptop initiative, to me, it's reparations for our children. It's the community coming together and saying, yes, this is what is deserved for these children of ours. And I'll stop there. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Anisha, my, my, I mean, we feel your energy. We sort of, we feel not sort of, we feel your passion and talk about community organizing at the most local level, right? Really mobilizing local resources to invest in our children. If we say we're the future, let's begin to act like it, right? So thank you. Um, it's a pleasure on that note to welcome Elizabeth Croy, co-founder of the People's Equal Revolution, who will give us a perspective that extends to some of the environmental challenges of our time that we face as a society and world. You know, um, again, one of those scenarios where it's not just the present that we need to be thinking about, but what, what sort of foundation are we laying for the world to come? What do we want to inherit? And so, um, Elizabeth, if you could talk to us about your organization and the work that you're doing in this space, that would be wonderful. Yes, first of all, thank you all so much for inviting me and having me on tonight. And then thank you to the audience for coming and supporting all of us. People's Eco Revolution had quite an interesting start <laughs> in the middle of the global pandemic. So I wanted to give a little bit of background behind it. My co-founder and I actually met out on the streets in the beginning of June during the George Floyd protests. And we met because we were both arrested and brutalized by the police and formed a quick bond. And when we saw that there was a group of people who were starting an occupation at Occupy City Hall, now Abolition Park, we decided to pack our bags and move on over and stayed and lived there for about two weeks. And while we were there, we experienced a community in a level of organization that we had never seen before. The community came together and everyone did little jobs to help keep the community running. I personally worked the supply table and that was the first time I'd really seen redistribution at such a mass scale. At any given minute of the day during Occupy City Hall for weeks and weeks on end, donations would come pouring in. It felt like by the carload. And everyone just pitched in to the effect that we had so many supplies 
we had PPE, toiletries, clothing, medicine, food, snacks, water, anything you could name that we turned into a really blended community of activists. And then we also had a bunch of comrades who were experiencing homelessness who started to hear about all the supplies we had and started to come and help us and help our cause. And that's really how I got interested in mutual aid. When I saw that we were really filling this gap that our government wasn't filling, especially during a time of crisis like the pandemic, it just sparked my heart and got me really interested in seeing what I could do more. And that is how we started. And another thing that I really noticed at Occupy City Hall was the waste. We did do some really sustainable things that were cool, like using solar panels to power charging stations for phones and computers and things like that. But what really sat heavy was seeing thousands of single-use plastic bottles and utensils and plates and things like that thrown away every day. So it really made me think, how can we be activists and how can we be out here on the streets, but do it in a more sustainable way. And that's how I came up with People's Eco Revolution. I wanted to make sure that whatever I did next in terms of mutual aid, that it was grounded in, in an eco revolution. So what we are is a radically inclusive mutual aid group serving small acts of kindness to the New York City community while leaving a small ecological footprint. We are invested in building a better future by redistributing wealth and advocating for BIPOC, women's, LGBTQA, immigrant, and disabled rights. We believe that by investing in our local community, we can raise each other up and move forward in a consciously eco-friendly way to preserve our planet for the generations to come. And we've been very lucky through connections at Occupy City Hall, we actually got involved with the Fight for Our Lives Coalition, which is a group of activists and grassroots organizations who all came together to help organize, which is actually how I got to meet the lovely Tanisha. <laughs> and we have been doing a lot of things. We do a lot of work with trans rights and with that sex workers rights. We're involved in the Tax the Rich campaigns. We help mentor student activists. Um, we help them put on events and we help do trainings with them. We partner with other organizations to do supply drives. And then we also do a lot with educational rights. And then on the side, we do a lot of work with corporate education and then disabled rights awareness. And the way that we do this is through a term that I coined called olive branch activism. And it's really just my own personal and my co-founder's philosophy that small little acts done every single day, turning into habits and a lifestyle can really make a difference. And we believe in leading by example and doing whatever we can. So what we do is we really strive to make activism friendly to the general public by extending those tiny little olive branches um, and acts of kindness every day. So we do this on three different levels. We do it at the grassroots level, which is, you can see our, we push carts, we go out on the grounds and we follow marches that we help organize with the Fight for Our Lives Coalition. And we hand out snacks and PPE and water bottles to everyone who's at the march and any local community members who we can help. And 
what we also do is to make sure we are leaving a small ecological footprint. We collect all of the trash in the water bottles that we use during the marches and then we recycle them. Another thing we're really involved in is community building. We encourage everyone who volunteers with us and ourselves the co-founders to be really involved in local organizations. Um, one that we are deeply involved in is called Live Up Programs and it is a, we put on programming for adults with Down syndrome. And we do that to help bring these, these ideas from grassroots movements like social justice and um, acceptance and tolerance and all the things that we're out there fighting for so we can help bring them into these organizations and help shift these organizations' minds. And we also do it on the corporate level, which is we really try to evangelize with corporate America by bridging that gap between grassroots and then the corporate world. Because when you get at the corporate level, there's a lot, there's a lot of fear about grassroots and activism because the news can give it a scary face. So our goal is to have everyone who works with us to be involved in the DEI movements in their companies and things like that to put a friendly face to activism and show through daily little actions um, that everyone can make a difference and hopefully people will start to get more involved and start learning more about the causes. Um, the, the team gave me a few considerations to look into. So one of them was kind of how, since the protests and everything that's been happening in 2020, have I seen the New York City landscape shift? and. I would say, I want to answer this in two ways. First, from a New York City perspective, I've seen a lot of people come together from very different walks of life to really fight for marginalized groups. And it's been really beautiful. And I think that we need to continue to do that and educate people on structural racism and keep continuing to demystify activism by leading by example. And to that point, I would say just recently, in more of the corporate setting, I'm always the person unabashedly <laughs> calling people out when I see structural racism or anything like that. And I feel sometimes like a broken record. And there, there was something that had happened recently and um, they asked me to actually go and present something to senior management. And it made me realize, they said, you know, there's a lot of people who feel like you do, but no one is brave enough to raise their voice. So I think, I think just being able to be, be there and be loud and proud and fight for rights and always be the voice for the marginalized is really important. Um, another one of the questions was, what are some of the challenges you, you face as an organizer in a woman of color? And one of the things you may have noticed is I'm very pale. <laughs> I am white passing and don't really read as a woman of color when you look at me. So one of the things I have faced a lot is delegitimization in the space, uh, which has led, it has just led to some beautiful cultural clashing because I've been able to kind of stand up for myself and educate people more about my background and then listen to other people's examples and hear their opinions. So I would say, the, it's been a challenge, but it's definitely something that I'm actively trying to overcome. And then the last question was, 
we, we really try to uplift disabled people at the core of our work and how do we do that? And one way that we do that is we're always actively aware as an organization of how we're perpetuating ableism and what we can do to change that. So one thing that I'm really working on right now is when we organize marches, especially with New York City Transit, it's very difficult for people who use wheelchairs to get around to get to the marches. And a lot of the marches aren't accessible. And so that's one thing that we're really working on that's tangible and happening right now is to make sure we're starting these marches from locations that are close to subway stations or bus stops that are easily accessible. And um, just making sure that we are always using our voice and normalizing, making accommodations for disabled people. And that's really all I had for you. So I'll, I'll turn it back over. Thank you so, so very much, Elizabeth. Um, I also want to make a note, something that I should have mentioned earlier to the audience members. We certainly want to invite you to submit your questions. There's a Q&A function. You can also use the chat. And feel free to start sending your questions in for the panelists. I cannot promise that we'll get to every single one, but know that I'll try my best. Um, so certainly, we want to create an opportunity to engage you in that way. Last, but certainly not least, is Vic Lee the co-founder of Welcome to Chinatown. And Vic will tell us a bit more of the work that she and her colleagues have been engaged in since the pandemic to preserve this historic neighborhood that has significant importance, not only for the city, but the country, and in a lot of ways, the world. And so I won't go too much more. I'll let Vic be the expert on this, um, but I'm, I'm really excited to, to hear you uh, present and tell us about what you all have going on. Great. Thanks, Vanessa. Let me just get my screen sharing. Um, okay, amazing. So um, as Vanessa mentioned, I am one of the co-founders of Welcome to Chinatown. Um, we are a hyper-local grassroots organization that is focused on Manhattan's Chinatown. Um, next slide. Okay, um, so it's myself and my fellow co-founder, Jennifer Tam. Um, we are both Chinatown residents. Uh, Jennifer lives in Chinatown um, almost about a decade now. Um, she came from Houston, um, moved here um, after college. And then myself, I am a lifelong New Yorker. Um, I grew up by Coney Island, but I really consider Manhattan's Chinatown to be my home because I was here every single weekend visiting my grandmother, where I have really fond memories of walking through the neighborhood um, buying groceries with my parents and going to the temple and really understanding my Asian American identity and feeling connected to the community um, through those Sunday experiences and having Sunday dinner at my grandmother's um, and being able to speak Cantonese with her because she was really the only person that I spoke Cantonese. So a lot of really fond memories and we both Jen and I, um, Jen, this is she has a really special place too, being this is her only home um, in New York City. We were inspired to start Welcome to Chinatown after seeing how COVID um, had the potential to accelerate the gentrification of the neighborhood. Um, Chinatown has certainly been shrinking and the risk of the gentrification and displacing um, the residents within the community and also shuttering of the small businesses that are really integral to the experience and what makes Chinatown this historical Asian American enclave. Um, 
So for us, the, our mission is to elevate small businesses to ensure that future generations can experience this neighborhood that has shaped our um, identities as Asian Americans. And also for those who aren't Asian Americans to be able to really discover um, this rich cultural neighborhood and one of the neighborhoods that also lends itself to the fabric of New York City and what makes New York City so amazing. Um, the reason why we want to focus on small businesses is that small businesses are the microcosm of the community. They really are what um, makes this community why tourists want to come here and why residents um, want to stay here. And further, they also serve as a lifeline for many of the residents. I believe it's about 30% of the residents who currently live um, below the poverty line within Chinatown, um, Two Bridges, Lower East Side community. So at our mission, um, why we exist, welcome to Chinatown, is quite simply here to say that Chinatown will always be open for business. Um, through our core values, so we are a volunteer network now, about 50 plus volunteers, mostly Asian American young professionals that run the gamut from uh, creative designers to corporate backgrounds. Um, but at, at the core, um, what has brought us all together is that passion to help and uh, help our community. And through, for Jen and I, um, we were really passionate in establishing these core values to make sure that our approach was going to work and also honor that culture and community of Chinatown. So in order to do so, we also ensure that we act as partners, not saviors. Um, many of the Chinatown small businesses, they are multi-generational or they're um, immigrant, uh, still immigrant owned. And they're often run by people who are significantly older and respect is really important in um, the Asian American Asian community. So we know that we need to ensure that we respect that um, they're, what they've contributed to the community, what they have built, and that we're partners. And again, not having that hero savior complex is really important for us. And in order to do so, we also have to listen before we deliver. We have spent a lot of time talking and getting to know the small business owners. I can say that being a resident here for the past 10 years, um, I didn't do enough of that. And Welcome to Chinatown has really given that platform and highlighted why it's so important to get to know the people that are behind some of our our favorite places. So we make sure that we listen and we act with empathy before we propose solutions. Um, what makes our organization unique, we've identified the strategic anchors, which is we want um, to ensure the preservation of this community that has represented the Asian American identity. Um, we also want to bridge gaps. I think that this is one of the strongest suits of Welcome to Chinatown, which is um, being comprised of young Asian Americans as well who sit, are mostly millennial and Gen Z, um, that we are able to bridge these cultural gaps and work with small business owners um, who maybe perhaps lack um, technology, modernization, or digitalization. So we're trying to assemble a volunteer base that addresses these generational gaps, as well as bridge, bridging cultural gaps, because I think it was um, pretty clear during COVID with all the xenophobia that there was a lack of understanding and education. So whatever we're trying to do, if we can do this through authentic storytelling that helps that and really um, changes the narrative and puts the narrative back into the small business owners and the community. At Welcome to Chinatown, we also wanna make sure we're giving this outlet for social good through meaningful and impactful work. With many of our um, volunteers coming from corporate backgrounds, this has gave, given them an opportunity to take their skill sets 
and apply it for social good. And we also want to empower our volunteers to do that and to take risks that maybe they may not be able to do in a, um, a corporate environment. But we encourage that here, which also allows us to be a change maker. There is a lot of red tape within the community or even navigating as we start to get more and more into understanding um, policies and small business legislation. There's so much red tape, but we want to think about how we can constantly innovate and disrupt norms to create really unique space for social good. Um, just to highlight what we've done. So an example, um, we saw the in inequities of uh, COVID relief funding, and we took it upon ourselves to start our own small business grant to address any cultural language barriers, socioeconomical challenges that prevented small business owners from accessing relief funds. Um, this is where we've started Longevity Fund. Jen and I don't have a nonprofit background, but we were really closely to um, establish this type of uh, grant program that would be equitable. So to date, um, we're about to finalize and distribute our final seven grants, but we've raised over $200,000 for this fund. Um, proud to say that, you know, in past the first 10 recipients who received the grant, they still remain open 90 days post-distribution. Through our work too, we're also able to make the case that it is important to do, to send, have materials available in local language. You've heard about for PPP that many of the small businesses were unable to access and didn't um, receive loans. Um, so through our work, we're able to make sure that all of our materials were available. We went door-to-door -door canvassing. Um, and you can see here that a third of our applicants do not speak English, but they could apply through our Chinese applications. And then also 26% of our applicants came through paper, which meant that the door-to-door -door process was working. Um, and lastly, I won't really, oops, sorry. Um, just to you know, round this out, we also work in thinking about how our goods and services um, through the revenue that we generate for small businesses can help to can help the underserved within the community, whether that be meal or produce donations. We've also um, purchased uh, inclusive and diverse books from one of the last Chinese, Chinatown bookstores to distribute that to low income um, students. And we've also partnered with Census Outreach. So welcome to Chinatown. Um, right now we've fundraised about $650,000 and for 2021, we have an ambitious goal of 1 million in revenue, but we're really excited to continue these um, to continue as an organization and grow. Okay, and that's it. Thank you, thank you, Vic. Wow, we've been getting some questions so far from the audience. Um, the feedback is certainly that this is really engaging and exciting. Just really quickly before I open it up and start to ask some of the questions that we've received, I did want to follow up with Erica on something that you said earlier in your remarks. You know, the city this year, 2021, is getting ready for a slew of elections. And um, it would be great if you could just talk a little bit more about, you know, how might women of color harness their influence and their voice to continue shaping the city on behalf of us all? And certainly if anyone else wants to jump in afterwards, that's great. But I thought it'd be useful for the audience, particularly those looking to get a bit more involved. Yes, definitely. So uh, the city council elections are coming up. They will be in November, as you mentioned. And there are also two special elections happening, one in February and one in March. Um, and city council elections actually have some of the lowest voter turnout rate out of all the elections. But they're extremely important because they are managing the budget for 
all of our city functioning. So transportation, um, issues with defunding the police, for example, um, school, public education, anything that you could think of with the New York City budget, you know, these folks are managing that. And so it's extremely important that women of color are making their voices heard in these upcoming elections. Um, so you can go online and actually look up who is going to be running for your district. There are dozens and dozens of uh, New York City districts for city council. So there's a lot of members. And um, what I'm finding this round, uh, this um, in this round of elections is that there are more progressive women of color running for office than I've seen in, in decades. So there's a lot of folks to choose from. Um, there's plenty of ways to get involved by looking up who's running and seeing whose uh, platform might align with your political views. And you can easily just donate if you can, if you're available to. You can do phone banking. You can do door knocking or canvassing if you're able to. Uh, you can provide all kinds of volunteer support for these campaigns. Um, SDL, we have um, endorsed one person already, Mumita Ahmed, who's running in Queens on a progressive platform. And whose election is going to be on February 2nd, and we're looking at endorsing several more candidates. So folks can always also reach out to SDL if you've never volunteered before or you're kind of intimidated into getting involved in local politics. Um, we're here to support folks and, um, you know, you can do volunteer actions with us. We do phone banking on Zoom together or we go together as a group to do canvassing and we can also just provide folks with edu uh, voter education materials. Um, so lots of ways to get involved and folks can always reach out to SDL if they if they want to step up a little bit more. Thanks, Erica. And related to the question on funding, I'm going to read um, a comment that we received early on in the chat. Uh, this person said, curious what the panelists think about public funding for charter schools as funding for general public schools have decreased. I'm not implying that there is a causal relationship but I am concerned with the city giving money to partially privately funded schools that don't offer the same benefits to the educators um, as they do in public schools. Anyone have any thoughts on, um, you know, anyone in the panel have any thoughts on um, charter school versus public school funding? Yes, um, uh, it's really unequal. Um, not only, are the educators not given what given what they need, but neither are the children. I have a few um, Success Academy children that are without technology, but not Success Academy with charter schools in, in general. You know, they make it seem like their schools are so much better than public schools. And um, really, most of the time, it just comes down to funding and it comes down to the fact that charter schools tend to, um, enroll children that test well and if you don't test well you're pushed out so um the inequities between public school and charter school is a lot to be said and you know they they say it's school choice but it's really not and tanisha i kind of want to stay with you another question we got from an audience member is how have school closures uh due to covid impacted women of color and mothers of color disproportionately well, first of all, um, if you look at essential workers, most of them are black and brown women. So they still have to go to work. So a lot of COVID has been, been brought home 
and circulated around houses that sometimes you're living with your grandmother and your aunt, you're living with a couple of people because as we know, New York rent is really high, especially in gentrified areas. So that's one thing. The other thing, some, some children don't have technology. That's a big problem. So even if they, if they are able to stay home and do their work, they don't have the technology to do their work. Uh, it's so many ways that uh, women of color have been affected by um, COVID in um, hurtful ways. A lot of women of color have died from COVID and it be our essential workers. And a lot of women of color children, you know, they don't have childcare for their children because the funding is not there. So it's a whole bunch of things that have um, disproportionately, disproportionately affected women of color. But again, you have to understand that these inequities was already there. So all it did was make the problem worse. Thank you for that, Tanisha. You know, I was looking up a statistic I was running a couple of weeks ago that was quite heartbreaking. It said that 100, 140,000 jobs were lost due to COVID in the month of December. All of them were Black women. Okay, so there have been economic impacts, health impacts, as you said about impacts on children and families. You know, it's quite extensive. Um, so thank you for shedding light on that and some of the areas that we ought to be focusing on. This um, sort of relates to another question that we got that I'll ask shortly, but I do want to say one audience member asked about resources. You know, all of you uh, on the panel are engaged in such important work and, you know, looking at ways that people might support you. So um, WCAPS is in the process of sort of compiling to provide that to audience members. So if the panelists, you want to just throw in your websites, social media handles, whatever it might be in the chat, that'll be great. Um, and, you know, to the point that I made about some of the issues that we care about a lot of times or sometimes we may not necessarily community that are most impacted, right? So this audience member is asking, how do you reconcile working to serve a community that you're not totally a part of and not feel like you're talking to them or having sort of the savior complex or, you know, like you're policing, you know, someone else. So essentially, how might um, someone go about engaging communities that you care about in a culturally sensitive and responsible way when you're not from that community? Sorry, I'm muted. Yep, can you hear me now? Okay. Um, for Welcome to Chinatown, I mean, it's important for us um, to really promote that listening, um, especially within, you know, I think coming from um, a corporate background and a lot, actually a lot of our volunteers are consultants um, and recognizing too that how you may consult in the workplace is very different about how you're going to consult in the community. So we really encourage our volunteers to take that time to listen and to shadow and listening to, um, it's about also understanding that there's information that could be really sensitive that you might assume, um, like even something about we've learned in uh, grant applications of like, oh, tell me more about yourself. That is even hard for some of our small business owners to answer because it's, um, they are very humble and they don't feel comfortable talking about themselves. So it's kind of learning and taking the time to think about these um, social cues or verbal cues 
And we encourage a lot of that and like doing the research. And then we're also um, really careful about, we're careful about language. I often have to stop myself in certain words that maybe, you know, I, I use in every day, but I have to think more conscious. Like we hate to say the word um, uh, save. Um, we always try and think about you know, help and support versus like save. Um, and even sometimes the word protect, we feel a little uncomfortable with. Um, so I think like trying to put into context and being respectful and thinking of that, um, that's, that's how we try our best to mitigate it. That's helpful. You guys want to jump in on that one? I would say don't question what you're hearing. A lot of people um, have pushback when people from these communities are leading um, our, and uh, for black women, for me in particular, um, you know, our leadership is always questioned or, you know, when we tell our stories is, uh, well, that couldn't have happened or, you know, that things like that happened a long time ago. It's the question. Don't question what we say. We know what we're talking about. We live this, we breathe this, we, we rise above this. So I would say, listen to, um, um, leadership of women of color and follow women leadership with unapologetically and without question. That's very important. Like I couldn't do what I did, what I do as the leader of my two organizations if my leadership was questioned and we would not have accomplished the things that we have. Um, I know for us, uh, self-determination is such a huge, um, point, I think, when it comes to organizing and moving policy or anything forward, I think those communities that are the most targeted are the ones who have the answers. And so it's on all of us, and no matter what type of work we're doing, to ensure that we're uplifting and allowing their leadership to shine through. Um, SDL ourselves, we're made up of many different women of color, Black, Indigenous, Asian, um, Latinx, um, all working together, which is an interesting experiment in itself. Um, but um, a lot of times we join onto campaigns and we always defer leadership to, to those folks who are most um, being affected by the issue because those are the folks that have the best solutions because they're the ones directly experiencing or being targeted by these systems. So for example, with the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act, it wasn't an initiative that we just started that we're like, oh, let's pass this policy and advocate for it. Um, we join the coalition and the coalition leadership is made up of women who are formerly incarcerated and they had the leadership and the say in in everything around that that policy developing. So we always advocate um, for folks joining campaigns or for um, signing on to new um, advocacy issues or policies that we have to defer to those who are most affected because they're the ones that are going to know the best um, how to move forward. I would say another thing to layer in there is when when you're going into these spaces, just be being very cognizant of of the way you present and what your role is to play in these spaces. And on the flip side, when we first founded People's Eco Revolution, my co-founder is a black man, and he would get pulled in all the time by white people to lead things in their organizations or lead initiatives for them to the point to where it would get a little frustrating because he didn't necessarily want a leadership role. So I also think if 
there's anyone watching who, um, if you're not black, then you should make sure that you're not, you're not pushing the leadership onto people who don't necessarily want the role and to be respectful and really look to the leaders in the community who are raising their hands and stepping up because otherwise you can almost get to the point to where you've um, my co-founder felt like he was really being capitalized on for his blackness and it was being commodified and that just wasn't fair. I am just <laughs> so much to be said on that particular point. It's a fine line, right? Because on the one hand is the like, oh, you know, um, I've heard excuses of we can't find to be in this role, right? And you find the one and you put that one in everything. And it's like, but there's more than one of us, you know? And so how do you um, genuinely create voice, um, create space for people to exercise their voice and agency in a way that's not tokenistic? Um, and thank you for all who commented, you know, each of you for commenting on that one. You know, We've been talking about collaboration and each of you and the work that you're doing work. There's a question here on what are some ways, some tactical ways organizations can improve collaboration in 2021? What sort of advice and suggestions based off of your experiences that you might share with other organizations who want to work more collaboratively on some of these issues? I can speak from an on the ground sort of activist level. I see a lot, a lot of activists on the streets. There's a lot of room for ego because everyone is so passionate about what they're doing that there's a lot of heart and people sometimes get caught up in that. And I would say that if we really want to coalition build and collaborate, that we need to try to set aside our egos and let let people come together. Um, I think one of the things we do really well in Fight for Our Lives, and Tanisha can speak to this as well, is we all leave our egos at the door and we're just there to support and uplift each other. And that's not necessarily the case that we felt when trying to work with other organizations. So just just letting it all go and supporting each other. Um, I, I echo Elizabeth a lot. And so there, there are a lot of grassroots organizations too that help the Chinatown community. Um, one thing when we thought about collaboration and also not uh, making sure we didn't have duplicative efforts of like how we could best use our resources. Um, we took like a, a per we spent a lot of time thinking about what was our strong suit and like, how do we want to, how do we stand out as an organization and what are the strengths that we have? And also then what are the weaknesses? So I think with the ego of knowing we are not good at this and this is something we should not try and tackle. This is something we have to collaborate on. And um, we actually started as trying to be a gift card platform. Like we wanted to solely focus on converting Chinatown small businesses into having digital POS system. And we realized this, this is not for us. There's an organization that does that called Send Chinatown Love and like we'll partner with them there. Um, but our, our focus has now shifted into um, thinking about grant work or um, also some uh, how we get involved in like policy and legislation. Okay, Vic, I'll actually stay on you. There's a question uh, directly pertaining to the gentrification of Chinatown. Um, the comment is that it's not nearly as big as it used to be in the 80s. 
you know, um, we're seeing this in the Low East Side as well, and that there's no singular answer to stopping gentrification, but how can we combat corporate interests in the vacant real estate in Chinatown, LES, as a result of COVID? What are some ways you think you're thinking of coordinating, thinking or coordinating, excuse me, in terms of policy legislation and otherwise? Yeah, it, it's, um, it's really difficult to tackle because it's so multifaceted. Um, we, one um, strength we've seen is in our follower base and trying to get our followers motivated and um, translating like policy and legislation into more like bite-sized digestible information that will motivate them to take action and have call to action. Um, one example, when we did our grant, um, there, we, we found that there was a need for funds in the code 113, which very recently was left out of city funding for, um, for actually for um, black, Latinx and Asian communities. And that's half of Chinatown. So what we had to do is we did a call to action, but we were explaining like, why is this the case? And it's because Chinatown is right next to Soho. Um, it skews the zip code, it skews the median income zip code. We broke it down in that information and made it easy for our followers to contact representatives. That made a huge difference because we were able to get involved into a city task force um, that will now, it, it's running throughout and trying to have our input. Um, another way, you know, the, that we see for the 2021 elections, what Erica mentioned about city council, that is huge because this is gonna have an influence in the upzoning um, regulations that are being proposed. And even the mega jail, $2 billion is going to a potentially going to a mega jail in the area, which should not even be built in the first place, but this is money that could be going to um, underserved residents right now. Um, so a lot of the work that we know is if we can mobilize followers and out, out, do through authentic storytelling and having the voice, um, I think that's going to be the most impactful way that we could do it while continuing to provide revenue to the small businesses and helping them with things such as rent burden, um, loss overhead costs, et cetera. Okay. This question's a good one. Um, well, all the questions are good one. But this one, uh, the person says, being a total political newbie, what's the decision-making process for deciding to work within the system? as in elections, being in a city council, et cetera, versus working outside of the system. Any insight on that one? Yeah, so um, I always say like, I'm Olivia Pope, but for good. <laughs> if anybody ever seen Scandal, they understand what I'm saying. Um, I could never be a politician, but I can um, encourage and endorse and um, get close to, you know, build a relationship through my organizations and through our, my network with people that are running and people that are in, um, in office, like um, Jamal Bowman is my big brother, like. Um, we helped him, okay, you know, that. organize for him in, in Manhattan to get right. him into that, that Congress sheet. And, you know, if I text him, he'll text me back. So I think it's really about, so for me, 
my outside game is more um, efficient because I've been on the inside. I've been in the meetings. I've done tried to work with the senators and be nice. And you get a lot of lip service. So I think it's a whole new day and that we really, really, really have to be intentional about um, who we put into office and what their values are. I seen something on TV the other day where, you know, a lot of people in New York once said they wasn't even thinking about mayor. That's craziness. In the environment that we're living in, we all need to be political because at the end of the day, these people um, have a lot of power in determining um, things that happen in our lives every day on the ground. So we have to be very involved and really, really do our research and really, really try to form connections with people that are either in office or people that are going into office. Preferably for me is people that are going into office. Thank you, Tanisha. Um, I think that, um, you know, not all of us have to get into activism or organizing in a specific way. We all have our different roles that are all very important to play. Um, some folks prefer to do healing work in the community. Some folks prefer to organize for elections. Um, some folks prefer to do more um, activism around specific policies. I think what we do know though, is that we can't concede any of the space at all <laughs> to the <laughs> opposition or the forces or the systems that be. So um, no matter what you do, your role is extremely important in however you decide to be active, whether it is in electoral politics or if it's just like, creating a local mutual aid within your neighborhood. So um, I think it's about finding your interest in your personal passion and then pursuing that because it's all very important. Really good one. Finding your lane, working that lane, but there's room either which path you choose essentially. Now, I know we're coming up on time. This question um, from this audience member is sort of looking at the future, right? For each of your organizations, how are you projecting the development of your initiatives and work in the next year or two with COVID continuing and the eventual getting back to normal, quote unquote, so to speak, in 2020? What's the outlook looking like for your organizations and your respective work? No easy question on that one, for sure. Sorry. <laughs> I'll start just by, I love this question. And I saw something interesting on Instagram yesterday um, from a disabled activist who pointed out that when we say back to normal, it's rooted in ableism. Because for a lot of disabled people, their day-to-day -day could be wearing a mask, could be not being able to see their family or their friends and isolated. So I think, <laughs> um, I, I don't think there is a getting back to normal. I know for myself, I would, our organization, I'd like to see us continue to be out on the streets and doing, doing our work, but long-term, I'd really like to, to have more people going into the corporate world and really trying to bridge that gap. Because I think when we can reach people who might be a little more moderate and be that face for them and make that connection that we can really affect change in, on a more cultural level. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, for, for us, we have 
we're thinking about like the COVID narrative. And I think there's a lot of COVID fatigue now in, because there's, there is so much need. Um, but we're already seeing um, if we kind of continue this narrative, whether that there will be interest lost. And we also have to think about um, the long-term investment in the community because we've, we've looked into research and um, some of these issues that uh, are facing Chinatown, they, they've been issues that's been identified over 10 years ago um, from studies from um, the Asian American Federation. So we wanna look at thinking now for our initiative moving into not only like recuperation, but sustainability. An example of what we're trying to do is have um, our grant program is moving into an accelerator. And we want to really, for small business owners to thrive, they need to be empowered. Um, they, they need to have that, um, be given the um, skills or um, tools. And we continue with what Elizabeth said about finding you know, those corporate partners. Like that's stuff we're looking at. Like how can corporates work better with small businesses? Um, where can we invest our funds and, and continue to build upon that outlet? So I think it's for us is like, okay, let's, let's shift the conversation now to sustainability. Yeah, that's the important thing, right? Moving beyond this particular moment in time, but also capitalizing on this momentum that was created off of a uh, creative foundation. Uh, for the future in a lot of ways, certainly. All right, go ahead, Tanisha. What's the future looking like? <laughs> uh, the future for um, PSPNY and Moms United um, is to uh, provide every child that we can touch with a laptop that's theirs um, in this coming year to do it every month i think that there's something really important to us and i think that um we won't stop doing that and to um advocate for the um fully funded education that we need to fight cuomo to tell him to stop taking our money our kids money because that's what he's doing right now we just got four billion dollars from the um, federal government for our schooling he wants to take two billion of it um people don't understand that cuomo takes our children's money for education every year black and brown children every year. Um, so we'll keep fighting for that to um, keep advocating for the person that we think needs to be mayor um, to defund the police, like all of these things that um, when we say black lives matter, that's what our future looks like to make sure that everybody else understands and feels that black lives matter too. Um, it's definitely been interesting organizing over the past year because a lot of what brings folks together is interpersonal relationship building and that's a really significant way in how you build solidarity is by showing up and being present for people. Um, so it's, um, I mean, SDL has shifted nearly all of our um, events to online spaces. Um, so it's been kind of difficult. Um, and also, you know, I mean, a lot of our members themselves are dealing with a lot of issues and anxiety, economic issues, issues as mothers around managing as women of color going through COVID and trying to organize and do work in the community at the same time. So, um, you know, we're at, you know, not full capacity in terms of elections. So this coming year, we just hope to continue to mobilize, try to get um, engaged and organize more folks um, to hopefully come out and show support so that we can elect a city council that's 
truly cares about working class people, about women of color, and that are going to prioritize our communities when it comes to making policy for the city. Thank you for that, Erica, and for that acknowledgement. Um, There's something that I've been thinking about as well. When we think about, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. You know, we just came off of a very interesting nat national climate and set of elections. Here we are with local elections. I mean, there's there's so many feelings. It's like every day, pick one. You know, everything from really feeling overwhelmed and burdened and tired, and you know, there's that. So really feeling mobilized and empowered, and we can do this. And let's be together, and everything in between, right? And so. The, we don't have time, we're down like four minutes, but you know, just the idea of what it looks like to care for self um, as part of your community building work, I think it's something that we have to continue to center and to talk about um, in order for the momentum and the organizing and the sustainability that we're talking about to go on, right? So I thank you, each of you, for your courage. You know, Elizabeth, I believe it was you earlier who spoke about bravery, you know, that it takes to show up every day um, and to not necessarily put your concerns aside, but to uh, realize that these movements and issues that you're a part of are in some ways bigger than self and our self. And so we thank you for such a great conversation. Thank you to all the panelists who are here to join us. Um, a couple of people have asked about resources and how to stay engaged. The panelists earlier sent out their websites and social media handles and emails. Um, WCAPS New York will be following up with a recording of the event in a few days, along with information on how to stay engaged with everyone here, as well as WCAPS New York. Um, feel free to follow the Instagram handle at WCAPS underscore New York as well as uh, the Twitter hang handle WCAPS in New York, I-N-N-Y, for more information and for panel uh, opportunities such as this one. Bridge, continue to show up for self and community. And thank you for this opportunity that I had this evening to facilitate this conversation. Have a good evening. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank, and thank you. you, everybody. You're welcome, take care. Thank you. Everybody be safe.